Well, I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be reading from verses 18 to 30. And if you're using a pew Bible, then that will be page 1201. And as you turn there, I just want to, I just want to thank you guys for the opportunity, uh, not only to speak here this morning, but for the church family that you've been. Our family is with uh, Mission to the World, and we moved here from Monterey, Mexico in 2000. And so we have, as soon as we got here, we've felt at home with you all. And so we just thank you. Um, I'm currently studying up the road at Reformed Theological Seminary. And so we we are very grateful for the, the ministry you guys have been to us. So let's read from Romans chapter 8, 18 through 30. Hear now God's holy and life-giving word. For I consider that the suffering of this present times are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. So we're living in a really unique period of history because one study recently showed that one installment from Time magazine could give somebody more information, especially about what's happening in the world, than somebody a couple hundred years ago would have gotten in their entire lifetime. So we are, we are practically bombarded with information. We, we hear it when we turn on the TV when we open up our laptops, and a lot of it is is not good news, you know. So we hear about the earthquake in Mexico. We hear about uh, ISIS in the Middle East. We hear about the atrocities in Myanmar. We hear about the hurricanes that are headed towards our own homes. And some of this, you don't even have to turn on. The TV, we can, we can feel it in our, in our own lives with 
We have relationships that end up getting broken. We have our own desires that are conflicting and half the time we're not even doing the things we'd want to be doing. And So we have to deal with this, this idea of, of suffering and evil that exists in the world. But then we also have to take that and reconcile it to the truths that we find in God's Word. And I hope that we can see this morning that Paul is giving us basically a framework in which we can do that. Some, some hooks that we can hang our own personal struggles and tragedies and um, events that happen in our lives on biblical principles to make sure that we're properly interpreting what happens in our lives by God's truth. So I hope that we see this morning, because God works everything for good, we gain a greater perspective in our suffering. We'll have a hope in the purpose of our suffering, and we'll also rely on the Spirit's plan for our suffering. So in this first part, this this idea of gaining a greater perspective, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. Now, at first, I hope that that doesn't sound flippant. I hope that doesn't sound... um, If you've ever gone through, let's say, the loss of a loved one or or something really tragic in your life and someone, you know, kind of gave you a a memorable quote, you might have thought like, oh, well, what does that do? How does that really help me? And there's a saying, you know, until you've walked a mile in someone else's shoes, you shouldn't tell them that their feet don't hurt. And I don't think that's what Paul is doing here. I mean, if anybody, I mean, this is, he's living in a time where, you know, after experience of beating for being a Christian, he couldn't just go to the medicine cabinet and, you know, break out the ibuprofen. Or, you know, living in a kind of a constant struggle where he didn't, you know, he didn't have a refrigerator that just kept food. For him, you know, life was life was a lot tougher then, and so for him to say this, this is coming from a real place of of experience for him. He knows what it's like to go through suffering, and yet he's giving us a sort of a temporal lens by which we can understand this. And we'll come back to this again at the end of the chapter. But he says that part of this is also because of the creation. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And so this is this is important. And I think if he had stopped the letter here, I don't know how encouraging it would be, but thankfully he goes on. But I think there is some encouragement we can take just from that. And that's that not everything that happens to us in this life is a result of our own sin. It's not a result of having a Zeus-like God who is just waiting for us to mess up so he can throw lightning bolts and zap us. It's not happening because God is arbitrary or capricious. Some of this is just from living in a fallen broken world. Some of this is just 
being part of, and he talks about, he mentions that later, that we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And he uses that word early in the chapter. And I think what he's connecting there is that we are physical, created beings, and so we are connected to creation. And there's a sense in which, in this life, we can only experience a foretaste of the hope that he's going to talk about here. And so there, there are things that can happen to us and we shouldn't initially blame God. But we don't initially blame ourselves either. So if you're living with chronic pain or um, you get diagnosed with cancer or some tragedy strikes you or your family, the first thought should not be, what did I do? Job's friends thought they had figured out why God was doing what he was doing. And they were wrong. So not everything is a result of sin. But on the flip side of that, it, it doesn't mean that you know I can do things that cause consequences and I'll have to live with those consequences. Um, so... Being part of this creational aspect um, gives us a wider perspective. And we see this played out in the life of Jesus himself. Because Jesus suffered, and he did so without any sin. But because he was willing to take on flesh, take on creation himself, he experienced suffering. And this is important. Look up in verse 16. Verse 16, he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that he may also be glorified, that we may be glorified with him. So Paul here is saying that that actually not only did Christ, the sinless one, suffer, but we're invited into that suffering so that we can share in his glory. And this is, you know, I'm about halfway through my seminary, and I still, I I doubt this will be answered fully for me. But there's a passage in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. You don't have to turn there, just listen. He says, For it was fitting... Which means, like, it made sense that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So, how does, how does the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, become more perfect? I don't know. I don't, I don't get that. (laughs) But he did so through suffering. And so, again, Paul is, Paul is just trying to pull back and give us a temporal, give us a creational perspective on the things that we go through. Because many times, you know, our, our events in life are, are, are like this. You know, they're, they're right up in our face. I can't even see my own hand clearly right now, let alone everybody else. And so that's what, that's what sometimes these tragedies will do. They'll just sort of, blur everything out of focus and and Paul's trying to 
sort of pull us back so that we can see things within their context. And so he gives us a greater uh, greater perspective in our suffering. And he does this by showing us that we have a God who can understand. There There was a sense in which in the Old Testament someone could say, well, God, you, you don't understand. You haven't gone through what I've gone through. You haven't, you haven't felt this. And Paul here is saying that that's not true any longer because Christ knows exactly what we're going through. He, he knows the loss that we've experienced. He knows the day after day um, building up of temptation and suffering. And it wasn't even anything he did, but he did so on our behalf. And so this, these creational pains that he calls it here, were where creation was subjected, was subjected in hope. So these aren't death pains. This isn't building up to, you know, the end or death. He says these are birth pains. This this increasing. Of, of suffering is building up to birth. And it's building up to hope. So he says, because God works everything for our good, we can have hope in the purpose of our suffering. Verses 23 and 25, he says, not only the creation, but we ourselves, we groan inwardly as we wait for the adoption of sons. For in this we were saved now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. When we were preparing to go to Mexico, so it was about 2010, um, the northeast of Mexico underwent some of the worst violence they had ever experienced. Um, the cartels literally took a page out of the Al-Qaeda playbook and were enacting terror on the citizens and on the, the um, authorities there in the country. And what made it particularly worse was the contrast, because in 2006, Monterey was voted the safest city in Latin America. So to go from that where... It was normal not to lock your doors or to worry about what you were wearing when you went down the street because um, there was there was no real fear of petty crime and and then to go to this being ravaged by the violence of these cartels, what ended up happening was an influx of people coming into the church, people coming in who for all their lives had been pursuing you know, success and prestige, uh, climbing the corporate ladder, had been putting all their hope in this life and what they could get right now. And when that started to be ripped away from them, they realized that that wasn't a true hope. And so the place they went is to the church, and they were coming for counseling. It was as though they had had their head down, and all of a sudden they were looking up and seeing what was really going on. And so it's in this context of suffering that especially Peter picks up on in 1 Peter 3 when he says, you know, we should be ready. 
We who have this living hope should be ready to give a defense for when anyone asks us about this hope that's within us. And it's interesting because, you know, I'm studying and I took an apologetics class. And so I can give these arguments about why I think God exists and all this. But that's not what, I don't think that's what Peter's saying. Because it's, it's one thing to have an answer ready, which we should, but it's another thing to live in such a way that people will actually come up and ask you about a hope that they see in you. There's something, they see something different in us. That, that we haven't put everything into the, our bank account or the type of car we drive, or the clothes we wear, or what the world considers success, that there's something more important to us. And that comes out most clearly in suffering. And so this was, this again is, is this pattern we see all throughout Scripture of where God is inaugurating this what some people call like an upside down kingdom. You know, it's this is just like God to say, I'm going to make a people after my, after, you know, a covenant people for myself, and I'm going to use an 80 year old man with no kids. You know, this is the God who says, I'm going to save Israel, and I'm not going to do it through some warrior hero, I'm going to do it through a little shepherd boy. You know, this is, this is the God who Jesus standing amidst the Israelites says, if you want life, then you need to pick up your cross and you need to die daily. If you want to be, if you want to be full, then you need to empty yourself. This is God's way of confounding the wise with the weak and the foolish things of the world. This is how we can stand out. This is how we can, in some ways, be the only Bible that some people will ever read. Is by living out this true hope. And we do that in the context of suffering. And so we are, in one sense, waiting. Because he says, remember I read that in verse 16. He says, we have been adopted, we are heirs. But then down in verse um, 23, he says, we're waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons. We, we see this paradox where the hope of what is going to happen, the fact that we will be adopted, the fact that we'll be justified, this glory that even creation itself is waiting on, is so real, it's so sure, that it breaks into the here and now. And it affects us. It changes us. It changes the way we respond to situations. It changes where we prioritize things. It can even change how we respond to suffering. And so we have this, we have this hope. And we've been moving towards it. And creation is groaning and waiting for it. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Paul says that, that little phrase there, because it was tempting for the Romans to say, well, you know, I get everything you said up to this point in the last seven chapters. You know, I read it earlier. There's no more condemnation. Why would I continue to suffer? And he's saying, even us, 
Even us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we're in this in-between stage, and so we're waiting for the hope that is to come. And so God is not sitting up in heaven, wringing his hands, wondering if we're going to make it or not. He's so committed. This hope is so sure that he is working in us now. And so he's working everything for our good. And so we can rely on the Spirit's plan for our suffering. In verse 26, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So creation groans, we groan, and even the Spirit in us is groaning. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When I first read this, I was thinking, I guess Paul is changing subjects now. He's going to move away from this and start talking about prayer. Um, But then I started thinking about it a little more. I realized, what do I do when I'm in a really hard situation? What... How, what is my response? Well, it's usually to pray that God will change that situation. I usually pray that he'll, he'll make that go away. It was a little awkward in praying for Irma um, because I was like, do I pray that it goes east and it hits my sister in South Carolina? You know, how do I, I don't, you know, what do I do? I just want it to go away. I just want it to stop. Um, and if you look through Paul's letters, Nowhere in there does he ever pray for the circumstances of himself or his companions, the churches, to change. There's a a lot of prayers and there's lots of ways we can example our own prayer life after Paul. But it's very interesting that he never prays for his own circumstances to change. He asks for strength through them. He asks for lots of things through them. But we don't know how to pray as we ought. And so we need the Spirit interceding on our behalf. So what do we do? Well, I mean, one thing we can do then is asking and trusting that what it is we're going through, and I I don't mean to say that it isn't really hard or that we don't go through things that are genuinely grievous or you know, prolonged pain and suffering or a deep, deep loss that aches in our soul. Those things are those things are very real. But we can look to God and ask him what it is he's trying to teach us. How how are ways that we can change? How are ways that we can repent? How are ways that we can trust more on his promises? Because it's those situations that really drive us to the end of ourselves, isn't it? How can we use these to be a better witness to the world? And so how is the Spirit interceding for us? He's interceding for us because He knows the will of God. He knows exactly what it is that God is hoping to accomplish. We can't quite figure it out. Sometimes in hindsight, we can see how things have played out. But we don't really know, and so we have to rely on what the Spirit's doing. 
I think this is like the crescendo of this of this chapter. For those, um, verse 20, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And there's some really important things to point out there. It, it doesn't mean that everything is good, but it means we have a good God behind all things, and he is intentionally working for he says it for the transformation for the to conform us to the image of his son so when we try to look at what it is that god is doing this passage really highlights it but we see this in in all of scripture you know it, this this passage began with showing how um, the creation itself was waiting, was longing. The word there in Greek is like it's it's standing on its tiptoes, trying to peer and see this glory that's going to be revealed because we are created and God has promised that he's going to redeem his creation and it says Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. So he is that new creation embodied. He is what's coming. And so creation itself is longing for that. But this isn't, again, this isn't, this isn't plan B for God. He didn't try something. It didn't work out. So now he's going to try to fix it. It says, for those whom he predestined, he also glorified. And those whom he, um, sorry, for those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I know that's like a rapid fire, a lot of past tense verbs. But if you think about it in reverse, it's really beautiful. And you can kind of see the, the, the perspective that Paul was wanting us to get in verse 18. Imagine everybody who will ever be redeemed. The entire church throughout all ages, everybody in eternity future, worshiping God. Everybody, all people who will be glorified, imagine that multitude. And Paul's saying here that every single one of those to get there was justified. Meaning they got there because of the work, the redemption, the death, the resurrection of Christ. Because they trusted in that. His good life was credited to them and our bad life was nailed to his cross. And so we, every single one of those people received justification and were able to be glorified. And then he says, every single one of those people who were justified were also called. That means every single one of them either grew up in a Christian household or heard somebody preach the gospel or had some family member share with them the gospel or they read something somewhere. They heard the gospel and they responded because God was calling them inside. He was wooing their hearts. They were called. God was intentionally at work in their life to get them to that justification, to get them to that glorification. And he did all that because they were predetermined. They were foreknown before the foundation of the world. Before anybody had done anything good or bad, 
God foreknew every single one of the people that would be glorified. And he's saying in the midst of that, that's the perspective, that's that eternal perspective that Paul has. And he's saying right now we're living in this small part here. And when you try to compare what we're going through, you, you can't even compare it to what God has been doing from eternity past and what he'll continue to do in eternity future. This is the, the hope that we have. This is that, that pulling back and seeing that God is, is not capricious. He's not arbitrary. He's not out of control and, and doesn't know what's going on. He has been working. And He loves us so much. He's so committed to us that He's given us His own Spirit to work in us and to conform us into the image of His Son. So we don't know exactly, you know, I don't think the lessons we learn through suffering are something we can post on Facebook or, or tweet about. They're not, they're not those types of things. The things we're learning, the things he's committed to working in us is that he's conforming us into the very image of his son. He's chiseling away everything that isn't Christ. He's promised that he, he's, he won't leave us. He hasn't left us as orphans. He won't forsake us. He loves us so much. He's so committed to us that he won't even sometimes give us what we pray for. There's a passage in the Gospels where Jesus, in the context of prayer, tells the disciples, which one of you, being a good father, would give your son bread if he asked? Or give your son a serpent if he asked for bread. That's kind of a weird, it's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? But I think he's saying there, a lot of times, our prayers, we're asking for serpents. We're asking for stones. And he's saying, I I love you so much, but I won't give you that. I'll only give you what you need. I've given you my spirit. He says later then, in verse... um, 32, and he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is, this is the God we have come to worship this morning. This is who we, this is who is in control of our future. This is who we can run to when we're in the midst of a cancer report from the doctor. Or when you flip on and you hear about just the political unrest that seems to be all over the world and in our own country. The chronic pain that some of us have to live with. He says in verse 35... Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then verse 37, no, for in all these things, those very things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's our hope. That's our living hope. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would use your word to to woo us this morning, to be a balm, to heal us. Lord, may we take our, our very real hurts, our losses, our confusion, our anger, our frustration with the futility of this world. May we come and may we take it to you because you are a God who understands. You've experienced this. You've endured this. And you've committed to seeing us to the end. You've not left us. You are faithful. And we praise you this morning that our that your faithfulness is not dependent on our own. So we thank you that there is nothing in heaven or earth that could separate us from your love. 